Well, for many Aussies, it's a given that Christmas entails the big lunch with the fresh prawns and the cold cuts of ham and a bit of roast turkey, cranberry sauce, Christmas pudding, pavlova, all that. (laughs) Uh, Then you sit down and watch television for the afternoon. But the culinary landscape of the silly season has undergone a significant change through the centuries, many of them. Uh, Whether rooted in medieval feasts or Victorian-era indulgences, the evolution of Christmas food reflects a dynamic history. It really does, showcasing diverse customs and culinary influences that have shaped the holiday menu over a very long time. And I mean very long time, uh, centuries. Joining us this morning on Overnights is Dr Madeline Shanahan, an archaeologist and food historian and the author of the captivating book, Christmas Food and Feasting a history to delve into the fascinating history of Christmas feast. And very happy to say that Dr. Shanahan is on the line. G'day. Hi, delighted to be here. No, lovely to talk to you. So firstly, tell us, food historian, what sparked your interest in, in food history? Look, uh, so I started my career in history with just a real passion for um, people and their stories. And I think just seeing food as really central to people's identity and we all have our own family history, our own connections with food and memories, and I just really wanted to explore where a lot of those came from, and, and the stories tend to be diverse and rich and curious. So one of the areas I actually started researching was recipe books. I was living in Ireland at the time, and I was very homesick for Australia, and I think it was a way for me of trying to understand Irish culture in more detail and, and to really connect with the story of its food and place and families and people. Okay, let's go a long way back. The ancient Roman festival of Saturnalia. How does that tie in with our Christmas feasting? So I think the main thing that's really important for people to understand about the pagan past and then the medieval world is that essentially there are a series of of great feasts separated by times of fasting. And these feasts tended to fall on, on periods of the year when there was an excess of food, a natural excess of food, when a harvest had come in or when animals were being slaughtered. Yes. And around that developed certain rituals that really are there to celebrate and come together through that excess of food. But also there's certain rituals that are there to ensure that the new year will also be prosperous. And so Saturnalia was one of those. Yeah. But there are others throughout Europe. So people might be familiar with the Yule Festival as well. Indeed, yeah. And so these have all really shape our Christmas traditions um, and we see lots of different elements of these earlier feasts kind of woven through in a lot of what we do today. Yeah, because in movies, haven't we, over the, so many movies have have a a groaning table of food in in Roman times. What was on the table during Saturnalia? So the Roman sort of Saturnalian feast would be very different from the sort of more British Christmas feast that Australia inherited, which has obviously changed itself over time. But they were fond of very rich foods, but it would have been the foods that came in uh, in the harvest period at that time, uh-huh, um, right. wine, a strong emphasis on meat, a lot of their imported products that they were getting from their own empire. Um, yeah. But they had some really, uh, one of the main things about Saturnalia that's really fascinating is it was sort of this day where uh, the social order was upended. So um, masters would wait on slaves and it was meant to be a fantastic riders party um, mm. and there's fantastic <laughs> descriptions of just how exciting and chaotic the day was and while we don't necessarily see that part reflected in our christmas some people might have heard of 12th night in the 12 days of christmas yes and 12th night was a really important um part of the 12 days for medieval and early modern people and we think that some of that chaos of saturnalia and that upending of the social order really came through into the early modern and medieval traditions of um of 12th night in particular yeah 
So are we talking the same time frame, so December? So when you say the harvest, that would be what their autumn harvest, I'm imagining. Yeah, so I think focusing on Saturnalia, that's very much from December. So it moves a little over time, but it started around the 17th of December um, and went to the 23rd. Then there was another festival called Sol Invictus, which was on the 25th, and that marked the, the, the rising sun, the unconquerable sun. Um, right. And then there was Callens, which was the 1st of January. So that's the Roman world. But if we look further in northwestern Europe, some of the, the other festivals I, I mentioned, like Yule, which was in the Germanic world, that really stretched from November all the way through to January. And so it captures that late autumn harvest and early winter. Um, and then winter itself, Christmas, um, and the earlier kind of pagan festivals around that time are really a period when there's a lot of excess of food, the animals been slaughtered, the harvest has been brought in, the new, you know, batch of alcohol is ready to drink, but there's no agricultural work uh, um, right. left to do. So it's a natural time to feast together. Okay, so when the Romans, of course, pagan gods, they mm-hmm. worshipped. So the conversion to Christianity over the decades and centuries, did Saturnalia, as you say, transform into the 12 days? So in other words, the origins of the 12 days of Christmas, is that the correlation? Sort of. Broadly, yes, not not right. um, not exactly. So essentially, what happens is um, the church in the fourth century are looking for the right time to celebrate Christmas once the Roman Empire has become Christian, mm. um, and they they debate different days. And there's sort of great research from biblical scholars on where that should fall. I'm not a theologian at all, I should say. No, no, that's okay. um, but there's fierce debate around when Christmas will fall, and they end up landing on the 25th of December, which, as I said, is that feast of Sol Invictus, and if you think about how significant that was, this idea of the pagan sun that's going to return and return again and, uh, and a feast dedicated to that, you can see the correlation with the figure of Christ and this idea of the sun yes. that returns and, and rises and is resurrected. And so there's a great correlation in terms of the sorts of symbols that the Romans and the church are um, finding connections between. Mm. And the other advantage is that it also means that for people who have who've practised these festivals for many centuries, millennia, um, you're not taking something away that is uh, is of real cultural significance. So that's how that gets established. By the by, the sixth century, the the twelve days gets established. But by then, we've already started to Christianise more areas of Europe. And so, like I said, we're bringing in all these other festivals as well that are practised in different areas of of Europe. So the twelve days really form as earlier pagan deities festival feast days translate into saints days and so the 12 days mark different saints days and different parts of that biblical story but what i'm trying to say i suppose is that they really pull on those earlier pagan feasts and a lot of their ritual and tradition yeah so let's move forward and talk about uh, in medieval times the enshrinement if you like of the 12 days of christmas into english law Mm -hmm. and then you've got the feudal lords and their servants in medieval society they're celebrating too how did they do it well, it was extremely important that a feudal lord showed hospitality to um, the peasants right, and um, right, to yeah. his sort of social inferiors. It was very much a part of his um, official role as a lord. Um, there's a wonderful account in 1250 when Henry III has failed to show a adequate hospitality and his feast is a bit shoddy and he's shamed for oh, this. So it's, right. it's imperative that they put on a good display. So that really is about meat. Again, your average peasant hasn't doesn't get to experience fresh meat most days of the year. Um, so coming into a into a big hall and seeing a whole roast venison, yeah, 
would, would have been extraordinarily impressive and exciting. So meat central, um, alcohol is central. There's extraordinary <laughs> yes. accounts about just how much they drink. <laughs> yes. And the other thing are these sorts of foods that are really special, so spices and and dried fruits and sh- and sugar as much as you can get it. Yeah. Um, these were not things that were widely consumed in the medieval world, so they were really preserved for these significant feasts. Yeah, and birds, chooks, pheasants, that kind of thing? Definitely. Yeah. So, again, sort of looking back to the pagan world, it seems that the importance of feasting on migratory birds, particularly geese, that left. And, ah, you know, right. you, a lot of medieval Europeans didn't know where they went. So the idea that you feast on these right before they leave has sort of kind of a ritual, magical-type part of the tradition and so that gets pulled through into the medieval christian world of the importance of feasting on those migratory fowl yeah um and and other birds yeah so the lords are obviously footing the bill uh, for christmas dinner would it depend on how what's the term cashed up the lord is is what you got uh, for your christmas meal oh yeah absolutely yeah. you know it's easy to think of them all as as cashed up but there were times that were hard there were bad years there were bad crops Yep. But the real issue, it's interesting in terms of if you think about it as labour relations kind of, and now we have the office Christmas party, in that it was critical that they allowed the peasants this time to unwind, to, to say thank you for their work. And if they didn't fulfil that responsibility, there could be very real consequences. So it, there was a lot of pressure on a medieval lord to deliver. Yes, indeed. And again, I mentioned the movies, and I'm sure that's a bit fanciful. You see some of them, like an old Caligula movie and, or a medieval times movie, and there's, you know, pigs on plates and there's food all over the place. So not necessarily. It would depend on the feudal lord, wouldn't it? Yeah. Definitely. And I think it's interesting when you see those depictions because they're, they're, they're pretty accurate for the most part. I okay. think over the course of the early modern period, so I'm really talking about the 17th and 18th centuries, yeah. people became suddenly more uncomfortable with the idea that what we were eating were animals when we were eating meat. But mm. for the medieval and, and the early modern people, Tudor people, um, there was sort of no shame in seeing a big pig's head on a platter. It was part of what was so special about the day. And yeah. so they absolutely paraded in pig's heads um, and animals that had been sort of presented in quite a way that we would find quite distasteful now. Well, you mentioned the Tudors. I mean, they're a bit legendary for their partying, aren't they, the Tudors? So how did they elevate the Christmas feast? Oh, they took it to new heights. And, you know, we touched on Twelfth Night earlier, but the Twelfth Night became an extraordinarily riotous party. There's accounts from the court of Henry VIII um, Mm -hmm. with just how debauched, really, Twelfth Night became. So there were these games that they would play where you would – take on a character for the evening. So later we see the, a little pea and a bean hidden in a cake and they have to fight. Whoever gets um, the pea and the bean becomes the queen and, and king yeah, of right. Twelfth Night or the Lord of Misrule, and they're the person that that is the sort of head of the party to ensure that it's as riotous and, yeah. and as much fun as they expect. Oh, the Tudors also love decorations, so we see them bringing greenery into their houses in a way that would be familiar to us. And again, just more meat and more alcohol yeah. was really a lot of the focus. <laughs> and if Henry VIII invited you to the party, you had to go. I don't think it was obligatory. Wasn't you had it? to go. And look, look, we all know he had huge faults. No one's going to defend Henry VIII, but he did know how to throw a good party. I think. <laughs> Well, just you mentioned the the pea in the cake. I'm reminded, and I don't know if anyone does this anymore. Probably uh, my generation and a bit older might. Uh, and my grandma used to put threepences and sixpences in the Christmas pudding, which of course is highly dangerous. And you'd you'd find them, and and there was a bit of money for you. But God, you wouldn't do that now, would you? To be against OHS in a big in a big way. 
Yeah, so those um, pudding charms and coins yeah. absolutely do stem from this earlier tradition of Twelfth Night. Right. Yeah. So in the early modern period, yes, like I said, they put the pea um, and the bean in. Later on, they become a bit more sophisticated too. So we hear about them burying little twigs or rags or clothes in and, and whoever got which one had to play a role for the night and it was a sort of a fortune-telling mm. thing. When Twelfth Night declined in popularity in the 19th century and with it these Twelfth Cakes, but yeah. it disappeared. We didn't lose those traditions. They just became part of the Christmas pudding. And so that's where that origin of, of charms that you're talking about really stemmed yeah, from. Right. It's quite ancient, yeah. but it's always been this process right back to Saturnalia and to the present of kind of weaving these earlier traditions into new kind of iterations of Christmas, yeah. of Christmas festivals. It might still get done, but too, gee, not terribly often these days. And yet that old thing of uh, back in those days, didn't they have like a, a big Irish wolfhound n- next door and they'd wipe their hands on the wolfhound and just keep eating? Pretty much. I don't know about the wolfhound, but it yeah. wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, you know, exactly. there's extraordinary um, stories of well of, of them having sort of a chamber pot under the table and yeah, relieving that. themselves mid feast. So yeah, yeah. yeah it was a very different time. Yes, yeah. it, it was. It was hedonistic in extreme. Now let's go the other way. Uh, the uh, the Puritans were they almost banned Christmas? The Puritans or that? Oh, they sort- really did. Yeah. yeah. So um, for listeners, it was during the English Civil War when the Puritans had taken control and essentially in, I I believe it was 1647, Parliament passed a law banning Christmas and other festivals too, Easter and a few others. Oh, God. They saw them as like Catholic idolatry. They knew that they were connected to the earlier pagan festivals, so they talk about the fact that this is really a Roman pagan festival and we shouldn't be practising it. And Mm. they also really objected to consumption. Puritans weren't known for having a good time, to be honest. So uh, no, they, they objected weren't. to the alcohol and the meat and the excess. No, Cromwell wasn't fun. No, no, <laughs> definitely not. He, he, certainly, he certainly was not a fun dude, Oliver. So th- them trying to ban Christmas in England and Scotland, I guess, uh, did mm. that affect the food? I mean, did they eat anything? Did that affect the food in any way? Or was there no celebration at all? It really did. Yeah. yeah, it did. So it was actually banned in Scotland earlier than England. The Puritans were in control there a little earlier. So. Um, Specifically, the, the Pur- when when it was banned by the parliamentarians, there, there are specific things that they take objection to and that you could be punished for. Right. And they they identify plum porridge at the time was what they called it before it became a solid pudding. So the origins of our Christmas pudding, plum porridge, and also mince pies as well as some other foods are specifically banned. Right. Um, we right. know that people continued to make them uh, in in sort of secret, and they. They survived, but they were attacked, and it definitely had an impact on Christmas and how riotous it was. It, it didn't come out entirely unscathed. No, you'd be in fear of your life if you did the wrong thing in those days, absolutely. You really yeah. would, yeah. Okay, uh, let's move forward. Victorian-era Christmas. Did they almost revive a Tudor Christmas then? So the wonderful thing about the Victorians, so, okay, so we got through the yep. Puritan uh, period. It survives. Yep. It comes back in the Georgian period. That's in the 18th century. Yep. But it isn't the the massive festival and party that it was in earlier periods. It's a more sedate family affair. So what the Victorians do is, is like us in many ways, they were incredibly nostalgic about uh, what they saw as the English Golden Age. So they looked to the Tudors in particular and to particularly Elizabeth I as their, their Golden Age, and they wanted to revive what they saw as this magical time when there was hospitality and feasting and when things were sort of a more beautiful Mm. period and so they really try to 
make sure that their version of Christmas that they practice was both, you know, pulling on that earlier period, they're nostalgic, like I said, but also the Victorians were very focused on family and the domestic sphere. So rather yeah. in it, than it being this public party like the Tudors had, they make it really this concept of coming together with your nearest and dearest in the home. Right. So with the Victorians, are we now at what I mentioned right at the beginning? You know, your roast to turkey, the full roast and the Christmas pudding, that sort of thing. Or what sort of food were they into? We're very much, we've arrived at what right. we think of as the traditional Christmas dinner. So all the things we know as part of Christmas, so the turkey, mm. the ham, the plum pudding, all of those were really a part of that classic Christmas meal as we know it survives from much earlier ages, but the Victorians made it a formal dinner um, yes. in which we have the turkey at the centre and the, the plum pudding as the critical support act. Oh, and it's the white tablecloth and the good silverware and the beautiful glasses, it's all that, yeah? That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God bless them. <laughs> <laughs> now, the wonderful, the extraordinary Charles Dickens, uh, did he play a role here? Are you going to tell us popularising this whole concept of Victorian-era Christmas food? Oh, he did. So, Victoria, and it's amazing how one man can have such an impact. So, wow. Dickens had a really hard life. Some of you listeners might know that, but he has really happy memories. He had ha really happy memories of Christmas as sort of some of the few good times of his childhood. Mm. And so, because of that, it, it appears in his literature consistently with, and most famously in A Christmas Carol. But his memories of this glorious time in his childhood have really had a huge impact on the art and culture and music and literature that we have around Christmas. And again, that that feast that they have in A Christmas Carol with Bob Cratchit and the sending around yeah, a big turkey yeah, yeah. and the Christmas pudding. Again, it, it's really what all the Victorians started to celebrate as part of their main event. Mm. So that's where it started. Now, I've got a story for you. When I was uh, quite a bit younger, uh, and I'm of Scottish heritage, uh, we used to go up to see my dear old Scottish grandfather in Queensland. He had a mango farm and he insisted on having that, exactly that, the full-on Christmas lunch with the turkey and the roast potatoes and everything. And you've got sweat dripping off the end of your nose. It's it's December in Queensland. He used to think, I was, why are we having this? Why can't we have something cold? So that's where the Aussie Christmas eventually evolves because we don't we eventually figure out, well, it's pretty stupid to have that sort of food at Christmas time. Yeah, so when the British first came to Australia, um, they were tremendously wedded and attached to the Christmas pudding in particular, yeah. but to this idea of a, their winter feast. It meant a lot to them. Mm. Over time, though, we start to see them celebrating their season increasingly. So by, by the mid-19th century, colonial Australians started heading out for picnics on the beach and in the bush, but they always take the plum pudding with them. Yeah. From the later 19th century, though, they start to actually celebrate the idea of mangoes and tropical fruits is a really important part of the menu. Mm. Um, and so we start, that's also as the fruit industry is taking off. And so we start to see people gifting each other mangoes from the early 20th century, really. It, it, it is an important part of the feast mm. um, and one that really continues today for us. Then later they start to embrace seafood. That's really a post-war development in yeah. the Australian Christmas thing, but again is really attached to summer. But it also reflects our increasing cultural diversity in the second half of the 20th century. Well, that's the thing, isn't it, uh, Doctor? We, uh, we got migrants, yes, from England. We got them from Greece. We got them from Italy. And, and uh, God bless them, they would have changed how we eat, surely. Absolutely. So seafood hadn't been a big part of the British Christmas. After the Reformation, the importance of the Advent feast, say, really declined. Traditionally, Advent had been a time to reflect and abstain from meat. 
And so in many Catholic countries today, we still see the emphasis on fish, particularly on Christmas Eve. Yeah. For the British, that was long gone. So they didn't really bring that part of their Christmas to Australia with them. But when we have a lot of post-war migrants coming in, particularly from Mediterranean countries and especially southern Italy, they bring with them this emphasis on seafood. And there's even traditions known as the Feast of the Seven Fishes, where you eat seven different seafood dishes on um, on Christmas Eve. And so we know that that was tremendously important to the people coming to Australia in those post-war years. Yeah. It took a little while for the wider community to embrace it. So it was really from the 1980s on that wider okay. Australia started to go, hang on, this is a perfect thing to be eating on Christmas. Let's really celebrate summer yeah, it's yum. Um, and this wonderful yeah. produce that we have. You bet. I'm speaking with Dr. Madeline Shanahan about uh, the fascinating subject of, of food, Christmas food through, uh, well, the centuries, really. By the way, I mean, and I don't, eat, don't even know why this happens. There's certain things, isn't there, that we only eat at Christmas time. I mean, I love dried fruit and I love, you know, glacé fruit. And my grandmother always put that out. And I think to myself, well, why don't we eat that for the rest of the year? But I, but I suppose then it's not special. Yeah, my grandmother loved glacé fruit too. And I yeah. don't think my children would even recognise it, to no, be honest. It's right. not as much of a part of the Christmas now. I was reflecting the other day also on that we always had a bowl of nuts that you cracked. Mm, yeah, that's Again, right. that's not something we see as much now. I think that fruit in particular, I guess it's so accessible that it's no longer seen as a really sort of a luxury food or an exotic food in the way that it once was, whereas particularly if you're in medieval Europe, um, this wasn't a time when fruit was widely accessible any time of the year beyond some um, sort of local things such as apples. And so these imported dried fruits were tremendously special. And I think it's that we really have brought that through into more modern iterations of the festival as well. Yeah. And what about, and it's, you know, it's so lovely at summertime here. I mean, the stone fruit, the tropical fruit, uh, the mangoes, the cherries that tend to be on tables. Can we claim that? Is that an Aussie thing? It definitely is. I mean, it, again, it draws on these earlier. The wonderful thing about Christmas is that you can remake it to reflect yeah. uh, the, the present, but that it still draws on these earlier traditions. So Christmas and the, the festivals that predate Christmas, uh, we talked about Saturnalia and Yule, really are all about celebrating produce at a time of year. Now, we've upended that in Australia in that we're in the middle of summer, but fundamentally we're still celebrating with our food, with our produce and, and the, what is seasonally available. And I think that that is just a continuation of, of humans' need to come together through food at different parts of the year. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and you listen to the ads or watch the ads for the the fish markets in any city around Australia, and they'd be everywhere. And uh, they'll tell you they <laughs> they're going to sell how many every ever thousand tons of prawns and however many dozens of oysters, mm -hmm. and that that's really become a thing at Christmas time for us, hasn't it? Yeah, I think it is almost the most defining feature of the Australian Christmas now, one that's quite shared, um, and that can be shared by a very wide and diverse community and it is distinctly Australian. Um, it draws on those earlier traditions and cultures like I touched on, but um, the way in which we sort of turbocharge the seafood feast I think is quite special. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah cold, cold oysters and prawns at Christmas time. I mean, that, that's me. Now you've got me. That, that's what you'll find at my place. <laughs> well, as long as, you know, and I have to tell you, uh, the other thing we've done, I don't know whether too many do people do this. My wife decided, well, no one really, I know we, it's, we sound like uh, we're weird, but no one in my family really likes turkey or ham very much. So we do a couple of ducks and, uh, you know, do duck pancakes. That's yummy. We're actually the same. My father particularly does not like turkey um, no. and he has memories of childhood growing up that like a roast chook was the most special thing you could have. So we've always had chicken yep. and a ham. 
Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah. Now, I don't want to start a fight with the Kiwis, but I'm going to start a fight with the Kiwis because I like it. Pavlova. How did that elbow its way into the <laughs> into the into the equation and replace uh, Again, your put? What uh, happened there? <laughs> so listeners might know there's been fierce food oh, history yes. wars fought over who invented it. And, it. and, you know, there's a lot of evidence pointing to New Zealand. But then I believe a French food historian came up and put their hand up and said, hang on a second. We've been, <laughs> <laughs> we've been doing meringue with cream. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so I don't think I think it's wrong to focus too much on exactly who invented these foods. The point of pavlova is it's hugely important part of food identity for the antipodes, we'll say, so for Australia and New Zealand. And so one of the things that happened, so it's really popularised from the 1920s. Mm. In the 1940s in Australia, we start to see uh, the Women's Weekly, magazines, cookbooks, yeah. Um, yeah. really promoting the idea of pavlova as a more suitable alter- alternative to the plum pudding. There's a lot of commentary even from the 19th century on in Australia about just how unsuitable plum pudding is in the middle of summer. Yeah, right. And so these cookbooks <laughs> put it forward and people embrace pavlova. And I think two of the reasons why it's such a suitable Australian Christmas dessert is like plum pudding, the earlier plum pudding that had this important part of British cultural identity, for Australian and New Zealanders, mm. pavlova also has that important sense of cultural identity. So you're not sort of just replacing it with something that's just your standard cake. It means something to us as part of our story. It does. Yeah, it does. The it other does. thing is it's tremendously beautiful. Oh. And again, plum pudding, you have holly, you have flames. Mm. It was spectacular. But seeing all that summer fruit on the beautiful sort of white soft pillows like snow it it really works as a grand centerpiece at a feast yeah oh, it's beautiful pav's beautiful now um well that's another thing too we're weird sometimes i mean i actually love fruitcake and i make two uh, in fact i better get on to it I haven't done it yet uh, every year and give <laughs> give one to my father-in-law and i love it but it's the only time of year i make it it's dumb isn't it why wouldn't you make it again during well then again then i suppose it's not special hey well the interesting thing is once upon a time um fruitcake was what you ate at all, um, you know, major events and celebrations. Yeah, yeah. It what, it's what was special. So, you know, for many listeners, they'll remember your average wedding cake being a fruit cake. That's pretty much a thing of the past. Mm. Um, but it was the main cake that people wanted at, at any important celebration. I think it also highlights that our tastes, our, fla- our sort of our flavour profile and preferences have changed. So oh, cool. now yeah. um, I agree with you, Tim. I love it as well. Yeah, um, but it really is... I sort of connected to Christmas and we, we celebrate those flavours because of nostalgia, but I don't think it's actually a taste that a lot of people have anymore. So no. it's kind of declined in some ways. Yeah. All right. Now, the present. Um, anything new? Any trends in Aussie Christmas food that, food that have popped up lately? Look, I think as a historian, it's almost too early for me to say. I'll be interested to you know, observe over the next sort of 20 years how things evolve. I think the main thing we're seeing, of course, is changing in flavours as our community become more diverse again. We see a changing in sort of recipes and the types of glazes you'll use on ham. Um, But it'll be interesting to see what new rituals and foodstuffs come in into our... I mean, for example, at Panettone, I think we've well and truly embraced more widely a lot of Mediterranean foodstuffs, but it'll be interesting to see rituals coming in from from other diverse communities and i think in we'll we'll know in about 10 or 20 years yeah, that's what has a, stayed that's a very good point with the uh, all of the new migrants that we have there might be some new christmas traditions pop up well only time will tell yeah now uh, what about this have you got 
are non-negotiable. And we've discussed all sorts of that just simply has to be there on the table. Otherwise, it's not Christmas for you. We are a pudding family. There you go. We always have been. I have to admit the last couple of years we've made it and then we were too full and forgot about it. Boiling <laughs> yes. away. But it, it is, it's essential to yeah. have it at Christmas for yes. me. I love it with brandy butter and I think our whole family would, would feel the same, that it's, it's a real non-negotiable. Yeah, for us too, uh, with my old Scottish grandfather, it was the beautiful pudding and custard. And I must say that it's tend to be replaced by ice cream. Uh, in in years gone. Well, mind you, I mean, if you've got the air conditioning on and it's a lovely day, what's wrong with pudding and custard, eh? What's wrong with that? Yeah, we tend to do a few desserts though now. So my brothers-in-law are not as into plum pudding, so we tend to, we've just added to the table, which again is I think a really great thing about Christmas is you don't have to take something away. You can have a pudding and a pavlova, but that's yeah. where... um the sort of excess stuff to cream up. Now, listen, listen, I'm, I'm going to get a tip. Just back to something you just said, putting it brandy butter. Mm. What do you do with the brandy butter? Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. no, you um, whip beet butter with brandy yeah. and icing sugar. Yeah. Put a little bit of vanilla bean in as well. Oh, yeah. And it's absolutely fantastic. It melts over the pudding. Definitely worth oh, a try. Oh, hello. <laughs> well, <laughs> just, just quickly, I, I, I just popped into my head too, uh, that wonderful chef Peter Howard, uh, gave me uh, this recipe on oh, it's years ago and I and I made it and honestly listeners this is wouldn't be approved by the Heart Foundation I'm telling you and uh, I soaked a muslin cloth in melted butter and lay that over the top of the turkey and I got a big turkey and I think from memory you started it out slowly then wound it up and all of that butter from the muslin cloth seeped into the turkey Oh, my goodness, uh, Doctor, it was just the most beautiful thing. And then I discovered that I was the only one that liked it. And, of course, you know, there's turkey in the fridge for the next month and a half. <laughs> I quite like turkey, but it's just not been something we've yeah, eaten as much of. I mean, it was traditionally always goose or duck in Britain until the turkey kind of took off yeah, a yeah. bit later. The turkey's a relatively recent arrival to Christmas, so I think you're, you're well and truly safe if you if you lean towards dark. No, I've, I've given up the turkeys off the menu. Look, it's been such a delight to speak to you and uh, thank you very much. Get a hold of uh, Dr. Shanahan's book, Christmas Food and Feasting, a History, historian and author, Dr. Madeline Shanahan. It was lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Tim.